should, maybe we should have that conversation about who should belong in America and how we should define that, that system. We go back to our founding principles very often and we talk about we the people. And we wanted to make sure that we, we really gave voice to the people. Community sort of determines what sort of politics we have. The reason that the world looks the way that it does is because people made it that way. Welcome. This is the first episode of Breached, a podcast on the American social contract. Over the next few months, we'll release 10 episodes exploring different areas that are commonly considered components of a social contract. In each episode, we'll explore an issue's various angles by featuring people who have ideas about what feels particularly broken right now, or ideas about what a new social contract could look like. Before we start, we did want to give a little bit of background on what we mean when we use the term social contract or compact, and what we think other people mean when they use it. There's a long tradition of so-called social contract theory, Rousseau, Locke, Rawls, that we are not going to delve into. The reason that we're using the term, though, without delving into the theory, is that on a very basic level, the idea of a social contract is the idea that some defined group of people are part of a community. And as members of this community, they have a set of common rights and shared obligations to one another. So in the context of the United States, you can imagine that between all Americans, there is some sort of imaginary hypothetical contract with terms that apply between us. And these terms might be explicit, they might be included in the Constitution or within different laws, or the terms might be implicit, when there's no specific codified language that you can point to, but there are certain values or norms that shape our behavior and our relationships with each other as Americans. Great. So that is our basic premise, and we will not get any more philosophical than that, though one certainly could. But since the social contract necessarily applies to a group of people, the issue of community seemed like an appropriate place for us to start our series. For this episode, we asked people what full membership in the American community actually means. The underlying question being, to whom does the American social contract apply? Or who does the American social contract include? We're both law students, and our natural inclination was to begin with some text. Looking at our founding documents, it's clear that the concept of a defined American community existed from the very beginning. The Constitution of the United States starts with, we the people of the United States. But for 80 or so years after that, individual states actually had the power to determine who was a citizen of that particular state and who was just a resident. And in some ways, state citizenship was a more prominent feature of American life than national citizenship. But the 14th Amendment, adopted in 1868, changed this. It granted national citizenship to all people either born or naturalized within the United States. And you can argue that this transformed what it means to be an American. It created a national community that hadn't existed in the same way before. Membership in this community can be thought about in different ways. There's a legal aspect. Are you legally an American? There's a political aspect. Do you have a political voice and a platform to influence and change the community? And then there's an economic and social aspect. Are you allowed to participate? On a practical level, are you treated as a full member? The first, the legal aspect, is maybe the most obvious way to think about being a member of the American community, and it's certainly a topic that's at the center of conversations and debates today. We spoke to Jin Park, a college student at Harvard who came to the United States as an undocumented immigrant. He came to New York City, brought by his parents, from Korea when he was young. Jin himself is a recipient of DACA, the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrival policy that was first implemented by President Obama and has since been rescinded by President Trump. 
His parents, though, who have worked in the service industry in New York City for many years now, couldn't qualify for DACA. And when we sat down with Jin, he pointed out the tension that exists with being eligible for DACA as a young college student while being part of a family and community who haven't been extended the same opportunity, and what this says about who is considered worthy of access to the American social contract. The DACA population, a lot of people know about, and they know about the DACA students in a really problematic way of, oh, these are the people who deserve citizenship. These are the undocumented people who deserve to be a part of our, our political union. But that avoids the question of who belongs in America, like who fundamentally are we going to say belongs in the part in this thing that we do together and who doesn't? Because by, by saying that DACA kids deserve citizenship because they're valuable, we're, we're not talking about the more the fundamental issue that's underhand. Like, should it really just be about your ability to produce economically? I think undocumented immigrants, as we talk about our experiences and our um, experiences of inclusion and exclusion, we are asking the public to engage in a broader discussion of what being American should be. So I would, to people who pose that question of you are not a part, you're not a part of this, you're not a part of America because of your crime, what does being American mean? And I would ask this question kind of respectfully, what have you done to earn your place as an American? I think a lot of people are complacent with the fact that, oh, yeah, being American just totally means that you were born here. But I think there, it should be more than that. Or maybe it shouldn't. We don't, we should, maybe we should have that conversation about who should belong in America and how we should define that, that system. If we really want to move forward in a stable way, we have to engage in this really difficult conversation about what we're going to say is a necessary requirement for you to be part of America. And that conversation no one has been having right now, definitely not our politicians, because it's really hard. Like, I'm going to admit that having that conversation is so much more difficult than just saying, for now, let's just say all the people that are valuable, just let's just include them. And the Trump administration is going in that direction of defining membership in our political union as some merit-based thing. Like, if you can bring X number of jobs and X number of, like, education hours, then you're included in our system. And if that truly is their position, I think we have a responsibility to kind of argue against that, that America itself is not, it's not an R&D firm. <laughs> like America is like an idea where you can come to the country and if you adhere yourself to our system and our institutions, because there is uh, uh, this recognition that America is diverse and that there are no arbitrary obstacles to your ability to advance, that you can succeed. So I'm hoping that we move in that direction of talking about who belongs, who truly belongs in America, independent of what they can contribute economically. Yeah. As you pointed out, immigration is maybe the most obvious way to think about what it means to join the American community. But legal citizenship doesn't necessarily guarantee a political role. Historically, the debate around citizenship in this country has differentiated between civil rights that legal citizenship would grant and political rights, the right to vote and to serve as an elected official, which didn't necessarily come with citizenship. One example of this is that at one point, most states required that citizens own property in order to be granted the right to vote. Right. And even though white women were generally considered to be American citizens since the country was founded, 
their citizenship didn't come with the right to vote until the 19th Amendment was ratified in 1920. Yeah, so when we're thinking about membership in a national community, one way that's helpful to think about whether you're really being treated as a full member is if you're given a political voice. We spoke to Jenny Beth Martin, who's a co-founder of the Tea Party Patriots, which formed in 2009 and was part of a larger movement that seemed to form in response to the 2008 presidential election. And I really wanted to talk to Jenny Beth because one of the things that struck me about that election and subsequent elections was the rhetoric that seemed to arise around who belonged in the political process and who deserved a political voice. This is a great oversimplification, but during the primaries, you had Senator Hillary Clinton, who was a graduate of Yale Law School, former first lady. And then during the general election, you had Governor Sarah Palin, who was from Alaska, had attended five different colleges, had five kids, including a young baby at the time. And even as a diehard Hillary supporter in 2008, I remember feeling a little uncomfortable with some of the rhetoric at the time that seemed to imply that a certain type of candidate or certain segment of Americans' political inclinations or political participation generally shouldn't be taken seriously. And I think one of the things that the Tea Party has done really well since then is challenging conceptions of who really is given a political voice in the larger American community. But I think that oftentimes the mainstream media winds up having this elitist attitude towards people in the rest of the the country who don't live in Washington, D.C. or or New York or in L.A. And they look at people and they go, oh, the, these people out in the middle of the country, they don't know what they're talking about. We're smarter than them. We're better educated than they are. We know much more than they do about how things should be done. In the South, we kind of have a saying, it's bless your heart, and it sounds really nice, but it doesn't, it actually means we think something bad about you. And that's kind of the attitude that they seem to have. You know, it's sort of like, oh, bless your heart. They don't, they just don't know any better. Oftentimes, and I think what we saw with Sarah Palin was just ripping right into her and, and tearing her apart because she didn't fit the profile that they thought should run for vice president. So I think that the treatment that she got really inspired a lot of people in ways that as we look back on this eight, nine years later, we were seeing the impact of it. But at the time, we just saw it to be very unfair treatment of her. Um, and I think that there's going to be a legacy from that even in years to come that we haven't seen. And as an organization that's representing people who perhaps had less of a political voice before the Tea Party movement took off, Jenny Beth affirms how important it is to continue to listen to and elevate those voices, because for many people across the country, that voice, that influence, isn't a guarantee. In the Tea Party movement, we go back to our founding principles very often, and we talk about we the people. And we wanted to make sure that we we really gave voice to the people I think that we have a situation right now where all too often politicians, regardless of the political party, are doing what the lobbyists and the traditional special interests in Washington, D.C. want them to do. They're taking care of themselves and they're taking care of the establishment before they take care of the rest of the country. And I think that in doing that, they've forgotten about the very people who've sent them to Washington, D.C. And we have to make sure that that we continue to exercise our voices, whether it's on the left or the right, that we're speaking up and that we're holding politicians accountable and that we have the courage, even when 
sometimes you you or your organization may be the only one doing it to stand up and hold politicians accountable even in the party where where your elected officials may most represent you We've been thinking about membership in the American community in terms of people's actual lived experiences. So someone's a citizen, they have legal rights, they have the right to vote, but practically on a social and economic level, are they able to live their lives as full members of this country? And we spoke to Clint Smith about this. Clint is a writer and educator. He grew up in New Orleans and he writes about his experience as a black man in America and his experience teaching high schoolers in Washington, D.C., And we asked Clint how his experiences growing up and as a teacher have influenced his writing and his perception of who is marginalized and who is given respect and regard in this country. Yeah, I think Hurricane Katrina, you know, that was my senior year of high school. And uh, I finished high school in Houston, Texas, lived with my aunt and uncle um, in a suburb outside of Houston. And uh, that entire experience, I think, was my first the first thing that really began to politicize me, I think, around issues of race, right, that I was sitting uh, on a couch in Texas watching the the grocery store down the street from my house under 10 feet of water, watching the, the people who who I'd walk down the street and, and, and wave to, you know, sitting on top of rooftops or in the Superdome, or, um, and, and knowing not necessarily having the like historical or sociological language at that time in my life as a 17 year old, but also knowing kind of in, intrinsically that, that this would not happen to a group, a demographic of people who were not poor and black. So often people, you feel, you almost feel crazy, right? When I remember the first time somebody told me about, uh, they were like, oh, well, you, you know, you can't complain about police violence because all of the black on black crime that's happening in New Orleans. And, you know, I was maybe 14 years old when I heard that. And I knew it was wrong. And I knew it wasn't true. And I knew it was a, a means of derailing an otherwise, like, legitimate conversation. But I didn't have the language with which to uh, express why it was wrong. And so, you know, but you, you, you move on and you develop and you grow and you get a sort of intellectual toolkit with which to, to understand that, like, that you weren't crazy, right? That, that, that there is a history of things that have been done to your community um, that that make it so that there are certain uh, types of empathy that are extended to that community and certain types of empathy that are, that are extended to different communities. The reason that the world looks the way that it does is because people made it that way uh, and because the decisions people made and, and the conditions in which people live are not inevitabilities. And I think that if more people understood understood that, you know, that the reason I live in Washington, D.C., the reason one part of D.C. looks one way and the reason another part of D.C. looks another way uh, is because of decisions that were made against people in those communities, not necessarily because of the people in those communities themselves um, or something that is culturally or biologically or genetically uh, deficient. Uh, And so so I think that's really important. And I think that, you know, to your broader point, it's it's important for people to understand that because once you understand that it could have been you, um, then I think it makes you a lot more empathetic to that person. Clint gave a very poignant example of how we directly choose to marginalize certain people. 
He taught creative writing to people who were incarcerated in Massachusetts for a number of years, many of whom have life sentences. Part of what it also is predicated on is this idea of social isolation, right? So we don't, it is meant and intended to uh, make it so that we are not actively thinking about people who are in prison all the time, even though there are over 2 million people who are in prison and jail right now. And that's intentional and that's purposeful. And, and part of what serves as a catalyst to empathy is proximity. And if you remove people from both physical and social proximity to others, uh, it becomes difficult to remember them as anything other than the caricature that we portray them as in the media or in the news. Um, and they become, they're not, they just singularly become a criminal and they're not somebody's father or they're not somebody's mother or they're not somebody's child. Clint published his first collection of poems called Counting Descent in 2016. And he graciously shared one of his poems with us that seems to speak to what it means to be an American without being treated as a full member of our community. So this poem is in my my book, my first collection of poems uh, called Counting Descent. And it's part of a suite of poems um, in which you have a series of inanimate or non-living, non-human objects that are speaking to black boys. Um, and part of what is shaping the theme of the book is the idea of the talk that black parents have to have with their kids about how to grow up in a world um, that is taught to fear you or that decides who you are before you have the opportunity to decide it for yourself. Uh, and so this is a poem that is uh, thinking about what a window would say to a black boy um, and, and trying to put those two uh, concepts and these ideas in conversation with one another. Uh, and this is the poem. What the window said to the black boy. When someone breaks me, they call it a crime. They call it property damage. They call it breaking the social contract. When someone breaks you, they call it inevitable. They call it your fault. They call it Wednesday. They say it's you who came cracked, came shattered right out the box. But they don't know that this is just something you do to show how many of you there are, that none of you are the same, that the more shards there are, the more ways there are to refract this light that envelops us each day. As we were exploring the idea of an American community and how this impacts a sense of legal, political, or practical belonging, we were struck by how the country's understanding of who belongs has changed substantially over time and how the terms of the debate have shifted. I'm particularly interested in how it is that we shape this debate as a country. How do we navigate different perceptions of who belongs? And one thing that Clint mentioned was the role that physical presence plays. The idea that prisoners are ignored because they're marginalized in a very physical sense. The idea that cities like New Orleans and Washington, D.C. are segregated by race. If you're physically removed, it's much easier to mentally ignore. And we came across a book called Vanishing Neighbor, written by Mark Dunkelman. Mark is a research fellow at Brown University, and in this book, he writes about the important role that our physical interaction in American communities has played in shaping our perceptions of ourselves and others. His book is based on the premise that the United States gained independence in the first place, in part, because of a radically different conception of what community meant. Instead of a hierarchical European model with a king, nobility, American power was organized within towns with people from different backgrounds and different levels of wealth living in the same community. Mark refers to this model as a township society. 
And so in township society where people know one another, where they're interacting, where the sort of, the sort of class barriers that existed and often religious barriers that existed in Europe weren't so prevalent, though they were, uh, they existed, that that was a fundamentally different sort of community. It was a different expectation of how you solve problems together. It was a different expectation about how you interact with the people around you. This was a essentially a community revolution, right, a social revolution uh, in addition to being a political revolution. Um, and so I think that that's the first transformation of American community and that that core building block of society in the United States, which is a, I call a township, exists in colonial villages, in frontier towns, in urban tenements, in first-ring suburbs. And then suddenly at the end of the 20th century, over the course of several decades, we have a second upheaval. And this upheaval comes from a national shift in how we spend our time and who we spend it with. So Mark points to data from the General Social Survey that shows that Americans are spending less time with people who aren't their direct family members or people who they are able to meet or keep in touch with through advances in technology. So people are spending less time with neighbors, the people within physical proximity who might be different than them. And so that's, a, it seems to me, a huge and unprecedented shift that is less noticeable because it's not the shift necessarily from living in farmland to living in an urban area or living in an urban core to living in a suburb, but that subtly in our own routines, there's an even more profound upheaval in how Americans build community. I don't have a legislative solution to the shift in American community. Uh, I think more frequently than not, the, the connection is the other way around, that community sort of determines what sort of politics we have. So I think that there are probably things that we can do that would try either to heal the fissures that have emerged because we no longer have middle ring relationships. But I'm not convinced as of yet that there's any single legislative solution to the problems that have grown from, grown from the shift in American community. There are all sorts of reform efforts on the table right now focused on gerrymandering or changes in Senate procedure or uh, or exposing who gives donations to whom uh, on the political front. Um, and I think there's probably some value in all those. And I think that, you know, reforming the institutions that exist above our social fabric, that's probably an important thing to look at. I'm much more interested in the social fabric itself. And are there ways to make it so that future generations uh, are compelled or uh, are inclined to build the sort of mutual understanding that existed almost uh, by necessity in a townshiped American community. And if that's the case, if Americans are reimagining the roles that physical communities and the people around us play, it's possible that the conversations that we're having around immigration and citizenship, our political process and who should be given a voice, and who is ignored and marginalized and removed from any practical participation, those conversations will be harder to have. Yeah, if our interaction within our physical communities informs our perceptions of our own rights and our own obligations to others, it's unclear what happens to our idea of what the American community is when that interaction changes. Well, we'd love to hear all of your thoughts on what community means to you and who's part of the American social contract. And stay tuned for our next episode on Descent coming in two weeks. We hope you'll check us out at breachpodcast.org. Follow us on Twitter at Breach Podcasts 
and subscribe to Breached on iTunes or Google Play. We're looking forward to hearing from you, and we hope you'll join us in this conversation. I'm Helena Swanson-Nystrom. And I'm Jyoti Jastrasaria, and this is Breached. Breached.